1: Back to the House of Pod. I'm kave I'm
3: Lizzie.
1: Um, Lizzie, today we have a special guest coming up. We have Dr. Robert Pearl. Did you know that? Did you know that Dr. Robert Pearl is our guest today?
3: Didn't know that. Funny, you should ask.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, this is exciting. Big he deal. Is he's a big deal? Former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest medical group. He's a practicing surgeon, a professor of medicine and faculty at the Graduate School of Business in Stanford, an author, a lot to talk about here. So we'll get straight to it. But before we do, wanna make sure we give a big shout out to Nadim for helping us with production. And uh, if you haven't already, please follow us at Twitter at The House of Pod and subscribe to the show. Obviously, if you haven't, you should. This is a good time to start. And if you have some free time and you like to write words, go ahead and leave us a little review. And we will appreciate it maybe even read it at some point later on an episode. Anyways, uh, anyone you want to uh, give a shout out to?
3: Never. But I was going to remind people to tell their friends and family to listen. And if we hit 10,000, we'll do some crazy stuff.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So if we hit 10,000, I promise I would let uh, Lizzie strap me up to one of those uh, electric shock units to teach me what menstrual cramps are all about. <laughs> what are they called? TENS units? <laughs>
3: Oh, is that what that is? Yeah. I have no idea yeah. what it's called, but it looks fun for me to watch you do it.
1: Yeah. Oh, I posted it, and the response uh, of glee from people <laughs> who are eager to see me get shocked was a little disturbing. Um, and, but and uh, my, uh, I am a man of my word, and I will keep uh-huh. it. Anyways, stay tuned, everyone. Great guest coming up. Uh, can't wait to hear your thoughts about it later. Stay tuned, And welcome back today. We have a very special guest. He is Dr. Robert Pearl. I usually don't go through someone's background as much as I'm going to now, but I feel like it's kind of necessary in this situation. So he is the former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, that's the nation's largest medical group. He is also a clinical professor of plastic surgery at Stanford University School of Medicine. He's also on the faculty of the Stanford Graduate School of Medicine. He's a podcaster, a speaker, and he's the author of *Mistreated*: Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And he has a new book called *Uncaring*: How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. Thank you so much, Doctor Pearl, for joining us today.
3: It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Um, we'll start Thank with you. your your new book because it's um, relevant, probably throughout you know the, this generation of physicians, but but even more poignant during COVID. Um, about how the toxic culture of medicine has affected all of us. Um, You know, you look at doctors with increasingly complicated relationships to technology status, their patients, you know, research is blowing up. I feel like that's probably also something that's almost impossible to keep on top of at any given moment in time. Can you explain how this culture and this you know, how the medical relationships start? Is that um, before med school? Does that start during med school? Is that when just when you become a doctor and start really caring for patients during residency? Where does this toxicity kind of start?
0: It's important to separate the systemic issues and the cultural issues, although they actually overlap and come back together. The systemic issues were the source of focus in my first book is Treated. I would we think we're getting good health care while we're usually wrong. And in that, I talk about the problems with the insurance industry, the very avarice pharmaceutical world, challenges that doctors have with the electronic health record. These are the systemic issues, and they all need to be addressed. But as I went around the country talking with people about the systemic issues, it became clear to me. That there were these other factors, very much embedded in the physician culture that was all, that were also contributing, and that if we didn't address those, what we'd find is that we would not make the progress that we expected. You know, I'm caring how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients. And by the way, all the profits go to Doctors Without Borders, so it's all given to charity. I begin by talking about Ignaz Semmelweis. Here he was, a physician in the middle of the 19th century in Vienna, Austria, appointed the head of the maternity unit. And he's appalled because there's an 18% mortality rate. And the hospital next door, run by nurse midwives. Imagine that, here's the leading academic center and the facility run by the nurse midwives has a mortality rate two-thirds lower. At the time, the most likely or most frequent cause of death, corporal fever. Women would get an infection in the uterus that would spread to their bodies and kill them. And the etiology was thought to be my asthmas, these smelly particles wafting up in the streets below. And he decided he wanted to do something about it. As you both know, often in medicine, advances are made through serendipity. A colleague nicks his finger during an autopsy on a woman who has just died from puerperal fever and goes on to develop not just a local infection, but to die with exactly the same clinical course as these women postpartum. And he hypothesizes that maybe it's the physicians carrying something, either on their hands or on the leather aprons they wear to protect their three-piece suits from the autopsy room to the delivery room. So he says, everyone will change their apron and dip their hands in chlorinated water. And lo and behold, mortality drops from eighty percent to under 2%. 90% reduction. And guess what happens?
1: Nobody nothing.
0: listens. Nothing. <laughs> I nothing. Mean, nothing happens. Nothing changes. You know, when we talk about these systemic issues, that's why I'm focusing on the culture. We talk about the systemic issues, We say it's too much, not enough money or too expensive, not enough time, the EHR. None of that was in play. None of that was in play. And yet the doctors across, not just his hospital, but all of Europe and around the world, dismissed his findings, didn't follow it, and he ends up dying alone in a mental institution four years later. You can't explain this except by understanding the physician culture.
1: It's interesting too, because in that example, you discuss how the doctors of the time wore the aprons on purpose like that. Because you would, you might think, why not just hose it down? Seems like an easy enough thing for people to do. But the culture at the time, what they thought was like very punk rock was they to leave all the guts and the gore on that apron, as if to show people, this is how hardcore I am. This is how great I am. This is how much I've done, how much I've seen. And it's that it's almost like the seeds of that culture are being seen right there. We don't do that now. We wear very clean white coats, but the same sort of concept still holds. People may not be washing their hands as well between cases. People still may not be, you know, taking off things that could transfer fomites, be potential sources of infection. That that inherent problem is still there. why is it so hard to change the culture of medicine?
0: Well, let me add the fact that. Although, we all know that the most common hospital-acquired infection, the leading cause of death for inpatients, is an infection, most often from C. difficile, not from coronavirus that travels through the air, but C. difficile that goes on the hands of doctors, and yet, when you put observers, hide them in the corner so they can watch what doctors do, one in three times. We fail to wash our hands going from one room to another. It's just like in Voice's time. There's no cost. Yeah. With the uh, alcohol-based disinfectants, it takes less than a second, and yet we don't do it, because this is the culture. Because culture says we're doctors, we're healers. We can't be carrying disease. And as you said back in voices' time, those leather aprons covered with blood and pus they were signs of experience. They were the elevation. Of status and that's the point I think that is so important for listeners to understand yeah that what culture is about is how do I seem more important how do I get more privilege we sometimes associate that with money and money's an issue but it's just as much about status I mean think about how we treat primary care in healthcare today we put it down at the bottom down at the bottom of all the specialties. And where does it start? It starts on day one of medical school. We think about the white coat ceremony that is so remarkable. It's the first day of school and names are called one at a time and medical students with their parents in the audience march on stage and someone from the faculty places that white coat on their backs with one exception, if the parents are doctors, now the parent puts the coat on. Now again, I want the listeners to be thinking about how does any of this make sense? I mean, imagine the audience is someone who's, both parents work two jobs to help their kid get through school or go to medical school. Why should they not be as proud? Right. It has nothing to do with the parental pride. It has to do with the parents saying to the faculty, you can teach the culture to my child for four years of medical school and four to six years of residency. Right. And why can the parent as a doctor do it? Because they already understand the culture. It is the beliefs, the values, the norms that we learned in medical school and residency. We yeah. carry them through our entire career. And they're yeah. so hard to change because we learn them so early in life the family you grew up in, how
3: to behave and how you, it's hard to change it. It's like an exclusive fraternity. It's not, it's not an awesome culture. You're right. I never thought about that on day one, it being so exclusive. And also when you mention like keeping primary care docs and primary prevention and healthcare prevention, we know that that's kind of the key to health. Um, that's not, the focus either. Everyone romanticizes and glorifies anatomy class from TV and movies. And that's what everyone thinks about as their first med school experience. And maybe a lot of listeners don't know, but that's sort of romanticizing surgery. It, that's not primary care. That's not like, you know, to, to apply that. And I think a lot of what this, maybe what you're talking about is that culture change is so slow. You know, I, I'd love to hear if you have a story about how those leather aprons that were covering their, I didn't know it was a three piece suits. But how how did they get out of the three-piece suits? Because that's awesome. It must have been really sweaty and gross. But why do you think it's so hard to change the culture of medicine? Do you think it's because it's just a slow thing that will change? Or is it just we're stubborn, inbred people with like lots of cronyism, and we're obviously trying to keep it within the family, like you said? I think there's
0: three reasons.
3: The first one is there
0: are systemic issues. By which I mean the things that pay us more money we're likely to want to do, so we value intervention over prevention as an example, part of culture because of that. The second reason that I think that it's there is that culture elevates status. So why do we pay less attention to social determinants of health or prevention because in the minds of the doctor, almost anyone can do that. So it's not that if a nurse practitioner can do it, or if a nutritionist can do it, then it doesn't add to our status, and therefore we don't value it that much. But the third piece is that it gives us comfort. The culture allows us to go about doing our job. A great example to me is how denial, and repression are so embedded in the culture of medicine. Where did they come from? They came from the fact that we used to not be able to do very much for patients. They came from the fact that even the end of the 20th century, we didn't know so many parts of the cause of disease. We didn't understand heart disease. We had a very minuscule knowledge of cancer and a variety of infectious diseases. Now we know those things. But that culture of repression denial stays with us. It's what accounts for the fact that medical practice changes so slowly. It takes 17 years on average for a particular new idea that's going to be great to become standard practice. Or think about telemedicine. Prior to the coronavirus pandemic, one or 2% of doctors offered it. Seven years ago when I was the CEO of Kaiser Permanente, we were doing 14 million virtual visits a year and I predicted it would replace 30% of what doctors do and nothing happened for six and a half years. And then a coronavirus comes and all of a sudden, doctors embrace it because now they're more afraid of coming down with coronavirus than they are of giving up a cultural place, which is the primacy of the office. I mean, think about it, the waiting room where patients are expected to wait upon us until we are available. We don't (laughs) see it that way, but that's the way that it is. The staff is our staff and our office. That is what culture is about. But before listeners think I'm negative about all of this, I also want to point out that in the pandemic, it was culture that saved not only doctors, but patients. I mean, early on, remember, We didn't have the protective gear. So doctors put on garbage bags when there were no gowns. They put on salad lids when they couldn't get N95 masks. They passed tubes down the throats of patients, knowing full well that every time as that tube went through the cords, the patient would cough, spewing virus in the doctor's face. You know, when they had two patients in one ventilator, they figured out how to put two patients on the same machine. It had not only never been done, it had never been even thought about. Here they did it. It was the culture that allowed them to be so innovative and bold. Well,
1: that's something I really appreciate is that you're able to look at medicine really, I think, in a pretty fair way. There's a lot of great things about our culture and a lot of great things we've done and a lot that is problematic. What's... What's interesting to me is that as opposed to other other things like say police culture or military culture, where there's been criticisms, you would expect medical culture to be able to change more easily because one of our you know underlying mission statement of what why we're doing this, and then two, because we're supposedly fact driven, evidence-based driven. You think you would see these things, it'd be easier once it's proven. Um, but still hard. It's still hard to to change the culture of medicine. And I, I know you've given a lot of thought, obviously, to our medical system and, and how it needs to change. And I'm sure you've considered before the pandemic what would happen in a situation if we were really stressed as a country. So you probably had given this some thought before it happened. Do you were you surprised by any of, of what happened during the pandemic with healthcare? What surprised you What didn't, I mean, did it meet your expectations of how we would respond as a country?
3: Well, clearly telehealth didn't surprise you because you've been saying it for seven years. Right. But I'm sure there's a lot of things that you maybe. Yeah, I I wasn't
0: surprised. On the other hand, in some sense, I was surprised before when things didn't change. Let me give you a couple of examples. First, you know, you look at chronic disease, What we know is that 88% of the people who died, this is based on the New York City uh, study, 88% of them had two or more chronic diseases. We know across the United States today that let's take hypertension, it's controlled 55 to 60% of the time. Okay, when I was the CEO of Kaiser Permanente, we controlled it 90%. I mean, our doctors are good, but the doctors around us were very good. The drugs are the same drugs. Why is that? It's the culture. It's not valued very much as opposed to intervention that sits in place. Or we tell ourselves, we treat every patient the same. And then you start looking inside what's happened during coronavirus. You look at early in the pandemic when there are not, not enough testing kits. And two patients would arrive in the ED, one a black patient, one a white patient. And we tested the white patient twice as often despite the fact that the black patient had a three times higher mortality. but when patients had procedures right. done, we gave 40% less pain medication to black patients. You go on and on, the maternity, yeah. three times higher mortality for black women, except when the attending physician's a black physician. Mm-hmm. Now, these mm-hmm. are the things I would say um, didn't surprise me, but they came out in the context of the coronavirus of COVID nineteen and the mm-hmm. coronavirus, we saw everything that was, I'll say, problematic becoming mm-hmm. that much more visible, that much more intense.
1: Yep, yep. You saw the systemic racism. You saw the unequal distribution of care.
3: What do you What do you think will happen? And again, this is total hypo- hypothetical. Um, to like medicine after the COVID pandemic. Cause I can argue two ways. And I'd like to know your thoughts. One is, um, you know, doctors are heroes. I want to be like that. I want to be a doctor and med school applications and maybe some emergency medicine physician, you know, kind of rates, the, the desire to do that will go up or those guys were frontline workers, put their life at risk. I definitely don't want to have to do that on my own. And also some of the terrible, um, kind of a political talking about doctors making so much money off of COVID and the deaths and how that might deter people. So with all that kind of rhetoric and garbage in the background and truth, I mean, we all saw doctors, like you said, be innovative and be heroes along with nurses, nurses lab techs, janitors. We know it's the whole, the whole group of people, but where do you see the direction of medicine? Do you see the volume and desire to go up or do you see the volume and desire to go down? Well, first, let me
0: point out, because I think it's so vital. I wrote about it in Forbes. I'm very worried about the physicians who are hospitalists and critical care physicians and even the ID doctors, because they're going through uh, what can only be labeled becoming PTSD. I spoke to one physician who lost four patients in one day. I talked to a resident who inherited six patients in the critical care unit on the first day of the ICU rotation. They were all dead by the end. I talked to a woman physician who is probably the grittiest, smartest, best physician I know, and she was telling me she couldn't go to sleep at night, and she'd wake up in the morning before the sun rose covered in sweat. I am hoping that we not only provide enough psychological support, but this is the cultural piece. What do we say as doctors? Tough it out. How many days of work did you miss as a resident? Probably none, right? Because that's the culture. 80 yeah. hours a week is considered an easy week. I mean, we're making it easier on the residents by only making the work. This, this is the culture you're raised in. And the last thing you're going to do is admit you're hurting and getting help. And it's the most important thing that has to be there. So I want to point that out, particularly for listeners who may be critical care physicians, or hospitalists taking care of patients with severe COVID. I still think that medicine is the greatest profession. I still think that uh, people are going to choose it. Uh, None of us chose it for the money. There's a lot easier places, particularly in the past 20 years, in the financial world, in the banking world, in the investment world. We were all at the top of the class, so we could have done that just as easily. No, it's a mission-driven world. Worries me is that we're losing that mission. I think in the post-coronavirus world, it is not clear. But again, I do teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and I look at this question of what's the world going to be like post-COVID? And I'm more negative about the economics of the United States, not the stock market because the stock market is driven by a different set of factors, but by the day-to-day majority of the people. The federal government will have borrowed $8 trillion. It'll have to be repaid with interest. By law, states have to have a balanced budget. And unless you're in a place like California with Google and Facebook and um, Netflix, most states are going to struggle with that. And we know that small businesses, 80% of businesses say they're going to continue to need financial help to survive the ones that are still there that haven't gone out of existence. And when you start looking at how can you rein in costs in a predictable way, what you start to see is you can't do it in a fee-for-service world. Because even if prices get ceilinged, the utilization can keep going up. At least only two possibilities. Number one, you could end up with rationing. Because rationing will solve the problem. You can only do a certain number of operations, procedures, tests, whatever it's going to be. If not, you're too old for the heart surgery. Uh, you're, getting on the end of the line for total joint replacement. This drug is not covered, not because it doesn't work, just because it's too expensive. Yeah. Or will transform healthcare. I will transform it in a way that I believe has to start with a single Capitated, that's the technical word, a single payment. Whether to doctors in a hospital, whether to a community, it can be done in lots of different ways. And with that payment, now physicians are going to say, okay, well, what are we going to do now? Because we're now at risk. And in doing that, they're going to start to come together. They're going to integrate across specialties. They're going to uh, be able to look for technology that will really lower costs. And in that process, I think the culture has the opportunity to change because the alternative, you know, we take an oath first do no harm. Rationing is harm. We all know that. And yeah. so this opportunity to do it differently, but I'm also not naive. What I know is that this change will be very painful. Kubler-Ross has talked about the five stages <laughs> of loss and grief. You know, it starts with denial. Then you get angry because you don't think you should have to change. You know, then you start bargaining. Okay, I'll do it your way Monday, Wednesday and Friday, but I still want to do the FIFA service Tuesday and Thursday. Then you get depressed when none of it works and you still have to change. And you get to acceptance. And acceptance says, this is the new normal. Not because someone's done it to us, it's just the world that exists. And in that context, back to the questions you were asking earlier, that's when I believe that culture does start to change and could change in a good way. In many ways, it'll be like a Roger Bannister broke the four minute mile. Everyone said it's <laughs> impossible, it can't get done. Or maybe like telemedicine before COVID, it's no good. It doesn't right. work. It's not as yeah. good as the office. Now the yeah. answer is it's often better because it's immediate and convenient and lower cost. And once that happened, after Roger DeBattis broke the four-minute a mile, 10 other people did it in three years, it could happen in American medicine, what Yogi Berra say, it's hard to predict the future, especially <laughs> when it hasn't come. It sounds you're, like- I remember that in
1: ahead. your book, Mistreated, you talked about it, you talked, it's tough to make predictions, especially, especially about the future. That's exactly. a great quote. That's another way yeah. to phrase it. But we make you do it all the time. <laughs> and we're gonna probably ask you to do it two more times on right. this episode.
3: Right. It sounds like you're very sort of hopeful or at least um, very optimistic with respect to the field of medicine. You you know, you you appreciate it. I still I I don't regret it. It's a good career that I find value and joy. That's fundamentally the most important part. But to get people back to those roots, like you said, you know, there is so much PTSD. And just now when you mentioned rationing, I'm just like all I could think about is bigotry and racism. It, that's like a terrible path for doctors and specifically American doctors. Like I can't even imagine how much that is fraught with just so much problems. If you were running a local community hospital, mm-hmm. what would you do? Because I think about this a lot. You know, Kave and I as GI docs, we saw, you know, in gastroenterology, we saw COVID, but it's not like the unknowns of being an emergency room physician. And you mentioned hospitalists, doctors, um, ICU doctors, and anesthesiologists, the ones putting the tubes down, getting coughed on. In addition to psychological, psychiatric support, what would you do if you ran a hospital? How do you show appreciation other than saying, you know, if you need to talk to someone, we support you, we'll help you. But just saying thank you, I don't think is enough for these groups of doctors that have put so much time and effort and emotion and even if there was no surge in your hospital, like us in San Francisco didn't see a, a huge wave like in LA or New York, they were constantly planning for it. The whole day was booked up with stress and meetings. How do you show appreciation? Like, what would you do?
0: Yeah, well, what I would do, and often what I did as the CEO of Kaiser Permanente was to basically recognize when people had gone way beyond what was otherwise expected. And I would make special accommodations to those physicians who are on the front line who every day face death at a level that's unsustainable, unimaginable. I mean, you know, we go into medicine to save lives and occasionally we lose a life. And as you know, it's very painful when it happens. But when it happens four times in one day, you need to be proactive. And in the same way that often physicians Don't focus on prevention. I mean, you guys are experts around colon cancer and what a poor job we do at preventing it. We could come back and talk about why we do so much colonoscopy and so little testing outside of capitated situations. But what I would say within all of that is I would give them extra time off. I would make sure that the conversations we're having, take them away to a resort not to figure out how to make some... Uh, new standard for the regulatory agencies, but just to have some time to relax and talk about feelings. Bring facilitators in who are psychological experts, not just financial experts. And that's what I would do. And I'd make it very clear to the whole faculty that these were the people who had the greatest stress and we're going to take care of them. And I hope it doesn't happen. We have the same problem in GI. But if it does, then the two of you will be able to attend that as well because no (laughs) one would want to, right. You don't want to have those things, but that's what I would do. It's a very personal way to approach it. And I doubt that very many administrators in those community hospitals are going to do it because that's not their
1: culture. You're, you're, you're right. And it's so important. We were talking about moral injury and burnout before all this, it's only going to get worse and we're not going to get our physicians who are damaged out of this with pizza parties. I mean, it needs to be something more significant. They can't yoga their way out of it. It has to be something tangible like that. And I appreciate that. You, going back a little bit to something, you're talking about some of these big Silicon Valley companies, you're talking about Google. Let me ask you about Amazon. So Amazon's getting into the healthcare game. We've talked about this a little bit on our show about their reasons for doing it, but I want to ask for another prediction from you, what do you think is going to happen with Amazon? Is Amazon going to keep it to themselves or are they going to try and become the next Kaiser? What is their plan? Because it looks pretty similar to, to Kaiser in some way. So what is their goal, do you think? And is it laudable?
0: Three years ago when Haven was formed, which is the antecedent of where we are right now. And remember, Haven was the combination of Berkshire Hathaway, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Amazon. Uh, I wrote a piece for Forbes in which I said that anyone who believes what Jeff Bezos said at the time, that this is only for their 1 million employees as a not-for-profit, probably is convinced that all Amazon does is sell books. Now, this is the move by Amazon. They have one-sixth of retail. They now want one-sixth of healthcare. And anyone listening who doesn't believe they're going to get it, is dreaming this is what they are very good at doing the key to it all is the introduction of telemedicine because the challenge of becoming a kaiser i forget to ask the question you know why has kaiser not grown so much more rapidly given how excellent outcomes they've achieved they were number you know our co we were number one in the ncqa in quality amongst a thousand programs 20 points higher than anyone else by GE Howard Associates at a lower cost. Why does not it happen? Because it's hard to do. You can't build scale. I mean, Mm -hmm. you can't build a new hospital and only have 10 patients in it because you can't get quality. You can't build a big office building and fill it with doctors unless you have a lot of patients living within about 15 miles because the laws of Medicare and the laws of the state don't permit it. Telemedicine is the solution. So now with with telemedicine, you can do a huge amount of things. Now we did some of this, by the way. We actually had a primary care physician on the Apple campus connected with 25 different specialists so that the problems could be addressed in that way. We put in place a program whereby if a primary care physician needed a consult, let's just say from GI, rather than sending them to your office, we'd bring you in on a video visit Sometimes you need to examine the abdomen, feel the liver, and look for masses and other things, but often the problems could be solved virtually, and now the patient either leaves with a diagnosis and a treatment plan, or at least has the process started so when they come to see you, they've already had the testing they needed, the blood work, so you can move things along that much more rapidly. Telemedicine becomes the first piece. What's the next piece? Well, wherever they have enough employees, they can put up an office building, and take care of people in the surrounding community. And what's the last piece? Who are, well, Jeff Bezos is no longer the CEO, but who are the friends of the CEOs, other CEOs of businesses? And what are they going to do? They're going to say, we're going to sell you higher right. quality, greater convenience, at 20% lower cost. And very quickly, this process will go, because what, that's what Amazon does. Amazon gives you better quality. You have more choice. It's delivered to your home at a lower price. How can you not be able to buy things through Amazon? Not everything, but easily a sixth of all your consumptions rather than driving someplace to a store, waiting online, finding out that the, the model you want's not there, having to wait and return to get it. I think that that's what we're going to see. And I think one of two things will happen either, physicians will lead the way and come up with a better answer which they can do i'm confident they can do it i believe in doctors or what's going to happen is that amazon will do it but anyone who thinks that what amazon's going to do is say who's the best insurer or how do we have everyone in our network you're dreaming they're going to find the people that they want the centers of excellence they want they're going to do GI procedures in a much smaller number of sites. You know, in my first book, I talked about heart surgery. You're in the San Francisco Bay Area. To San Jose San Francisco, there's 10 centers doing heart surgery outside of Kaiser Permanente. Three of them do fewer than 300 cases a year. That's less than one a day because you got to do heart surgery seven days a week. How can you run a business with high quality effectively When there are days when you, and you have to have your team around in case something goes wrong, you have to have people at work and you're doing no cases. No business could function in that way. We're the only ones who can do it. Why is that? We just raised the price to make up for our inefficiency rather than taking the three centers, closing two of them, and consolidating the volume in the one remaining one, and now getting better quality at a lower
1: cost. Yeah. that's a it's a great breakdown and it makes a lot of sense. I mean, will they do it well? Certainly. They they'll find a way to to do it well. And doctors may have their faults. We talk about the toxicity of medical culture, but largely as you discussed, doctors go into this for the right reasons. There's also a good reason Jeff Bezos didn't become a doctor. He has a different mission statement than than the rest of us do in medicine, and it won't be the same. It won't be the same for everybody at least. So, it doesn't seem like it'll be um a great answer if we let that be the answer. Um, that's that's an excellent point. Let, let me let me ask you though, it all kind of rests on the fact that televisits are the future. Now, I'm sure you follow the patient satisfaction scores and you, you've seen surveys about this. How are patients, and I, I think I have my own answer from my experience, but how are patients doing with televisits? And are do you think that once a pandemic eases, they're going to still want to do it? Do you think that at some point patients are gonna wanna come back and be seen?
0: It's a great question because today a survey came out which had identical results to what we found in Kaiser Permanente. The satisfaction with a telemedicine visit is 10 points higher than it is with an in-person visit. Wow. Now, the data from the report that I read today indicated that patients are more interested in having a telehealth visit when it's with primary care or for, I'll say in quotes, a less severe problem. When they get to a GI doctor, not for a preventive colonoscopy, but because they have potentially a cancer, that's a different situation. And there they'd like to be, at least on the early data, in the room with you. Although I will tell you that we had a physician up in San Rafael, which as you know is, you know, a two-hour drive on Sunday morning and a four-hour drive in the middle of rush hour from San Jose um and he was an expert in kidney cancer and renal cancer and patients got offered the chance to drive four hours or do a telemedicine visit with him and they were more satisfied with the telemedicine visit because he could bring up on the screen the anatomy the diagnostic procedures the tests you know when they came there they still wanted to see him at some point Or in the book I talk about the fact that I ended up breaking my leg and I got taken to Kaiser at Santa Clara. And the doctor I saw, I knew he had operated on my shoulder. I I get a lot of athletic injuries. And he had operated on my shoulder so I knew he was a fabulous surgeon. (laughs) And he said he recommended a physician in San Jose, 15 miles away, which is remarkable that a doctor would send you someplace else to see a physician. But I never saw that doctor prior to the day of surgery. He had my x-rays, he could see me. I couldn't walk because the leg was broken. What was the reason to get an ambulance, go down there, experience the pain? All of that is possible, but I think in the patient's mind, the specialist is rarer but more severe problems and is more interested in seeing the person flesh to flesh than seeing them virtually over Zoom or some other medium.
3: That's funny because your book is about like culture among medicine, and now what we need to do is change the culture for patients because, you know, there's no reason. A lot of the time, especially for something that can be seen, that's maybe in a cast and can't be seen, that you can be happy and satisfied and get great care with just a video visit or I mean, or even a telephone visit. Movies inflammatory
0: bowel disease what is the physical exam telling you guys maybe i'm wrong because i'm not a gi doctor but i suspect that 90 plus percent is through the history x-rays and the other
1: things that you do it's just like when you talked about how we wouldn't miss a day of residency because we're so important we can't miss work because we're so important what telemedicine has taught us is for most cases and certainly not all most cases we're gonna do what we're gonna do based on the history and and that's the majority of care can be delivered i think very well in that way and i think now we have evidence that's starting to prove that and i think from the pandemic we're going to have even more yeah um let let's change gears just a little bit uh we don't want to keep you all night although we certainly could uh you know it's late over where you are so again we appreciate your time but you've talked in the past a little bit about the darker history of the ama and that's something some of our listeners have found very interesting and people have asked us to talk about. And honestly, I just don't know that much about it. Can you describe a little bit about, I'm sure there's hours that could be spent on it, but can you give us a brief introduction into what might be considered some of the, the more problematic parts of the AMA's history and how that might be contributing still to the culture of medicine?
0: Let me make a, some comments that many of the listeners are going to have trouble with because I think that it's important that we understand moral injury that you raised earlier in a broader context. There is no question that an insurance company that is making it impossible for us to give great care, impossible to get the testing that we know is needed to rule out a very severe life-threatening problem creates moral injury. There's no doubt about that. Or a pharmaceutical company, that prices insulin at a level that mothers have to give half doses because they can't afford the food and the insulin. Yeah, moral injury is definitely inflicted upon us. But I think we need to ask ourselves, how do we, or the societies that we belong to, also inflict some of that same damage? Now, we saw that in out network surprise billing. One in five patients, who came to an ED last year or had a surgery, received a surprise bill. I mean, I, in the book, I talk about it being the equivalent of human shields. When people would take uh, innocent people and put them around places of weaponry with the expectation that no one would vomit, knowing that they would kill innocent individuals, we've put the patient in the middle. I think that creates moral injury. We can debate that that's the way that I think that it is and very different than it was a generation or two ago. The AMA I think has been a major proponent of maximizing the physician dominance. It's been really the cultural icon for healthcare with the individual doctor working alone in the office with anecdotal experience being more important than evidence-based information, defending almost everything, you could call it unionization, of what physicians have done and turning a blind eye to things like racism. I mean, it was not, I think, something like 1965, when the AMA finally told the chapters across the United States that they couldn't exclude physicians simply because they had black skin. That was remarkable. I mean, that was something yeah. like 17 years after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in baseball. The Army integrates all of its units sitting in place. A decade earlier, Brown versus the School Board happens. And then, they don't even acknowledge and apologize until 2010. And even then it's a heart, a half-hearted effort. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't know that.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's, AMA, it really yeah, bothers me that baseball beat us
3: <laughs> by 17 years. <laughs> that bothers on. me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 2010, like, come on. So I think that I don't, I don't think the AMA is any worse
0: than some of the national specialty societies. The ones that defend out-of-network billing and surprise billing. Of course, now it's Congress passed a law saying it won't be legal anymore. Or the ones that essentially defend doctors doing procedures for which they have inadequate volume to Mm -hmm. achieve the best results. You know, laparoscopic hysterectomy is the, in general, 80% of the time, the better operation than an open procedure. When I asked the chiefs of OBGYN, 16 of 18 were women, how many of these operations would a doctor have had to do last year on you before you had led probably her, him or her, uh, do the Mm -hmm. laparoscopic hysterectomy for you? They all agreed about three to four a month, 36 to 48. In the United States today, half of OBGYN physicians do fewer than 10.
2: Mm.
0: How can we justify giving care to patients that we would not accept for ourselves. I mean, maybe we're gonna pick a particular doctor, but we should be picking that doctor for a group of physicians, all of whom who have adequate volume, and organizations like the National Societies, the AMA, are the ones that defend the right of every doctor. It's like it's our right to do surgery rather than (laughs) asking ourselves, What do we, how can we achieve superior clinical outcomes? And going back to your comment before about Amazon, Amazon's gonna find the five, 10, 20, depending upon how frequent the problem is, centers of excellence that have a high enough volume to get consistently higher results. And we know it exists. We just simply choose not to do it because the purpose of these organizations, the purpose of the culture, is to maintain our status. And I think what we're gonna learn very soon is that if we keep trying that, to go down that path, then the Amazon, by the way, Walmart today uh, obtained a telemedicine company. It's not just Amazon, it's all over the place because businesses can see the future. You know, I was in Oregon about, I don't know, probably 15 years ago. I saw a sign that said, quality, service, cost across the top. And the bottom said, pick any two. That was (laughs) the mentality in the past. That's the culture of medicine that Mm -hmm. today's doctors learned in medical school and residency. What these businesses know is that you can get all three, superior quality, more convenient care, better access
3: at lower cost. Right. Well, that's what I was going to ask about Amazon is like, they're not going into it. And this is what uh, Kaveh and I talked about a few weeks ago on the show. I was like, Kaveh, what do you think about Amazon going into business and um, wanting to take over healthcare? Because it's only because it's a big market share. It's only their incentive and their motives are very questionable. But like you said, this is what they do. They'll do it well. And I don't wanna see Kaisers who have great mission statements go under, but Amazon will just recruit great doctors and then figure out how to do the rest. Do you think that Amazon will make a mess of it or, or do it exceptionally well? Because they'll just recruit amazing doctors to do what you're saying, to kind of streamline the rarer procedures that people shouldn't be doing and that they are doing across America.
0: I haven't seen Amazon in terms of the customer do anything negative. You know, I've never bought a product from Amazon that's been low quality. I've never been deceived about what I was getting. I was always given lots of choice. Maybe I picked wrong, but it wasn't because I in any way was um, misdirected. I mean, Amazon, the criticisms of Amazon have to do with its employees, not with its customers. Right. And I think that that's exactly uh, what you're going to see going forward. It's, it's going to be almost the opposite sitting in play.
1: Yeah. And, and and it's going to be good. But the question is, how many people will it be good for? Is it going to be good for everybody? Or is it going to be good for certain groups of people yeah. where their insurance will cover it and other yeah. people are left without those options?
3: I feel threatened for some reason. I don't like the idea. For some reason, well, I, I hate it. And yet they do this well. So like, is it a on, terrible on a- idea?
1: On on a personal level, you're a doctor and you see how they treat their employees. Yeah. You know, can you imagine being an employee in that system? It's clear it's not run by doctors and it it doesn't seem like it's gonna be a healthy experience for the for the medical professionals, but who knows? I mean well we'll, we'll have I, you I
0: had to predict. Let me, let me predict a little bit. Please. I think for the people in Amazon who are physicians, it's gonna be a good experience. The people who are really gonna get hurt are the ones left behind. Yeah the ones who now all of a sudden lose status. And I talk in my book a lot, Sir Michael Marmot, who's a very famous uh, sociologist from uh, England, you know, has, has documented what happens when people drop down the status totem pole hmm. and what they get is exactly the symptoms of burnout, lack of fulfillment, dissatisfaction with their jobs, growing fatigue, that's what happens in those individuals, and I think it's what's going to happen. You know, you mentioned before that the single-payer government. I don't think that's going to happen. And I'll tell you why. The reason why Medicare, I'll, I'll call it traditional Medicare, which is the FIFA service variety, not the, um, the capitated variant of Medicare Advantage. The reason it can do well is the government is, has the legal authority, unlike anyone else, to set pricing. And what it's done is essentially to limit the price so that the costs have gotten carried over into the commercial world. If you try to do Medicare rates for every hospital in the United States, 80% of them would disappear. It's a 4% margin business, and they pay 10 to 20% less than the average cost. The same thing would happen for physicians, the same thing would happen in a lot of different areas. And if on the other hand, you you pay the same rate as everywhere else but you in no way manage the integration the care you don't have any kind of integrated care delivery system now the utilization goes up and up and up and the costs become unacceptable and so you either have to believe that given less money that doctors will figure out a way to give equally great care at lower cost, or you have to say that that's a recipe for essentially what happens in other countries where you end up with long lines, long queues, long delays. You can go to the ED and spend 24 hours waiting to get seen. I think that there's a pretty negative downside to that that I have a lot of difficulty with, even though a lot of my friends believe it would be a tremendous solution to the healthcare and affordability of the United States today.
1: Yeah. No, that's a great, well, it, we could keep you all night to talk more about this. Yeah. We'll have to have you back on yeah. uh, if you're willing. Uh, I really want to thank you for for coming on. Uh, you know, I think regardless of whether or not everyone's going to agree with you completely on what ails the American healthcare system, I don't think anyone can doubt your passion for changing it, improving it, and your passion for finding the Purpose in medicine and holding on to that and trying to instill that in other doctors. So um, I think that is highly commendable. Um, can you tell everyone listening where they can find you and where they can find the book that is coming out, Uncaring How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients? The best
0: place to find the book is through my website, robertpearlmd.com. I thought you were going go to say Amazon. Sorry. I <laughs> have nine choices. Amazon's one of them.
3: <laughs>
0: I don't actually sell the book. I just connect the, the two yeah, people who yeah. are there. As yeah. I said, all of the profits go to Doctors Without Borders. So this is not anything that I yeah. earn money through. It's really, you know, what my mission. Use the word mission. Uh, and so it's robertcrollmd.com is the best place to go. They can order the book. They do it in the next uh, short while. They can get some freebies. They can get a signed book plate, discussion guide, a, uh, a reading list, and a chance to read the first chapter before anyone else does. But a couple, can I make one, one last point or two last points? Please. What is, you raised such an important issue. I want the listeners to think about it, which is this notion of mission and purpose. And some of it has been taken from us as doctors. And some of it, I believe, we've taken from ourselves. You know, and I, I've done a lot of, surgery in other nations. And I've seen people come back from the trips. I saw physicians coming back from Liberia who had to have IVs running in their arms because they had sweat so much and the protective gear they had to wear, they would have passed out. And they come back so happy, so fulfilled, so much joy. We've given that up. And I think it's essential that we do the things that we can do to have it come back while we work to make sure the things that are done to rob us of it are able to be reversed the last point i want to make and i talk about in my book is my parents loved each other deeply throughout their entire lives my dad's mind my mother was perfect There was not the slightest flaw when she ended up um with pneumonia following a chronic leukemia and clearly she was dying. My father would have given up his arms and his legs just to have a few more days with her. She was perfect. My dad, my mom on the other hand recognized my dad's faults. <laughs> Fortunately, they were not so severe that she felt the necessity to change them. That's how I have evolved in my medical career. I think early on in medical school, residency, I thought medicine was perfect. I didn't think there was gonna be a flaw there. I've since discovered and seen some things that are more severe than my dad's faults. but <laughs> I love medicine as much as I did before in the same way that my dad loved my mom as much as she loved her, despite the fact that my mom loved my dad as much as he loved her, despite being able to recognize some of the shortcomings that existed. Thank you so much for having me tonight.
1: Now, now, I, now I need to read the book because I want to know more about your family. <laughs> That's great. Hey, thank you so much. It's a real honor to have you on the show
3: thank you thank you you ready Mm-hmm. Oh, well.
1: <laughs> no i got another one hold on okay. here's this one i keep an extra in the chamber just for times <laughs> like this i
3: was like do you practice
1: this podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice diagnosis or treatment Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible.